a Podcast One production. James Nestor is an author and a journalist whose work explores the million-year-long history of how the human species has lost the ability to breathe properly and why we're suffering from a laundry list of maladies, snoring, sleep apnea, asthma, autoimmune disease and allergies because of it. James says the greatest indicator of lifespan wasn't genetics, diet or the amount of exercise as many had suspected, it was lung capacity. In the conversation that follows, James and I traverse how to breathe properly, what it does to us and how to harness breathing to transform our health and lives. To become aware of your breathing, start training yourself in healthy breathing can have measurable and significant effects on your health. This stuff is free. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. James Nestor is the New York Times best-selling author of two books, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art and Deep. In this episode, you will learn how harnessing the power of the breath can not only allow you to live longer, but can change your life. James, as my listeners know, breathing and the breath has been an interest of mine for the last little while. So when I heard about your book, you were definitely a guest that I wanted to have on. But how I want to start today is how did you get into doing research about the breath and take us through your background? Well, I had never set out to write a book about breathing. And when I told my friends, a lot of whom are journalists and writers, that I was writing a book about breathing, they thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. Until I started explaining to them some of the science behind it and how humans have essentially lost the ability to breathe properly about some of these people who had rehabilitated themselves through doing nothing more than breathing. These outrageous claims that were all backed by a firm foundation of science. So I think it was a number of things that led me into this subject matter. It was some personal experiences. I had a very weird experience in a breathing class where I was just uh, had my legs crossed and the corner of a room and was breathing in this very simple rhythmic pattern and just start gushing in sweat. And a couple of years later, I watched freedivers do their freediving thing where they can hold their breath for five, six, seven, eight minutes at a time, dive to depths of 100, 200, 300 feet. And that's not supposed to be scientifically possible. So I saw where breathing could take us. I saw the potential of it. And I thought there might be a deeper, more interesting story behind it. So take us back to that class that you did when you decided to find out more about breathing and you broke out in this huge sweat. Like what was going on there? Well, I had been suffering from a lot of breathing problems. Uh, I was eating right. I was exercising all the time. I was sleeping right, doing all the things, checking off all the boxes for, for health. But I was getting sick all the time. I had bronchitis often. I was getting mild pneumonia year after year. And I was told that this was just kind of normal. It, it came with aging, but didn't seem normal to me. My other friends weren't having these issues. So my doctor actually suggested I check out a breathing class and I found one at random and went to it 
And that's when that experience happened. And after that experience, I mean, this wasn't like a sweat from jogging. This was t-shirt drenched, hair drenched, sweat blotches on my jeans. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I went back to her and I said, you know, I had this weird experience. Tell me what happened. What happened to my physiology? Why would breathing do that? And she didn't really believe it. She said that I had a fever or that the room was too warm or I was wearing too many clothes. None of that was true. And I think in the back of her mind, she knew it wasn't true. She just had no idea. Um, that wasn't her job to explore such things. So as a science journalist, I wasn't going to write a memoir about breathing, um, <laughs> which is why I kind of forgot about it. I filed that away in the back of my mind for several years until I found a more reasonable end to the story. So within your book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, which is a fabulous book, you then go on to find out all the ins and outs of why breathing is such a significant thing. But you do a lot of trials with different bits and pieces. And the first thing you do is you adventure into mouth breathing and breathing through the nose and you actually clog up your nose to see what it's like to just be a mouth breather for a while. Can you take us through that? So I had learned from the chief of rhinology research down at Stanford, a guy named Dr. Jayak or Nyak, that nasal breathing is far superior than mouth breathing. I could give you a whole laundry list of reasons, but the short version is filters air, conditions air, heats air, moistens air. And this is our first line of, of defense is, is our nose. But something like 25% of the population habitually breathes through its mouth. And he was so frustrated by this because he said no one really knows how injurious mouth breathing is. And yet everyone's doing it. And they're suffering from these chronic long-standing problems because of it. And they don't realize that it's associated with the pathway through which they breathe air. So I asked him, I said, well, how soon does that damage come on? Do you have to mouth breathe for years or decades or months? And he had no idea because no one had tested it. He said doing so would be unethical. So I volunteered for an experiment. I said, well, why don't, why don't we test it? You're one of the top rhinologists in, in the world at one of the world's leading research institutions. This could be interesting data for you in, in what you're doing. So he had no money allocated for it. So we had to pay for it uh, at Stanford, which was not cheap. And I convinced uh, a friend and breathing therapist from Sweden, Anders Olsen, who knew the power of nasal breathing and all the del deleterious damage associated with mouth breathing and flew out here on his own on his own dime to be part of this study. It was 10 days of nasal obstruction so that we were just breathing through our mouths. And then it was 10 days of breathing through the nose and we would compare data sets before and after. So what happened? <laughs> well, we knew the mouth breathing phase wasn't going to be fun, right? No, we weren't kidding ourselves. Mm. We didn't know it was going to be as awful as it was, truly awful within the first couple hours. So this wasn't after a couple of years or mm. a couple of decades, within a couple hours, my blood pressure just shot through the roof higher than I'd ever seen it in my life. Really? About 20, 20 points higher than it usually is. 
said, well, that's weird. It could just be a coincidence. Went to bed that night and I snored for the first time that I'm aware of. I have not been snoring before. Started snoring. I asked Anders the next morning, I said, were you snoring last night? He's like, yeah, because we, we were recording everything, video, audio, pulse oximeters on our, I mean, we were just mm. covered in sensors. He said, my sleep was awful. We said, oh, oh, anyway, that's weird. So a few days later, I was snoring for four hours instead of just, just a few minutes. And I got sleep apnea, which meant I was choking on myself. Anders had the exact same thing, but way worse than me. So this damage from mouth breathing doesn't just start you know, after an extended amount of time, the second you do it, it starts kicking in and your body gets so out of balance. And that was the first very shocking revelation. I realized there, this was not a randomized control trial of 400 people, but researchers already knew mouth breathing was, was very injurious to, to the health, but they didn't know how quickly it came on. And that is exactly what we, we helped to show. Does a lot of the population breathe through their mouth? I mean, maybe when you sleep, but during the day? All the time. And kids are the worst. Yeah. So, so a huge population of kids breathe through their, their mouth. And what happens is you're not only exposing your lungs and your body to allergens and pollution and dust and grime, which can lead to problems associated with, with asthma and, and even anxiety and other respiratory issues, but it can change the shape of your face Yes, because if your oral posture is like this, your face will actually grow longer and your chin will move back mm. and you'll have something. It's so common that researchers call it adenoid face from when your adenoids are inflamed and you have to breathe through your mouth. And you see this all over the place. I mean, the majority of people now have this facial profile. It's funny, you know, because I actually found out about that a while ago. And then I started looking at people's faces and I completely saw what you're talking about. Some interesting research that you did that absolutely blew my mind was when you started looking at animals and the way that we were many years ago and how we are now and how the faces developed. Can you take us through your findings? Because this blew my mind. So when I started getting more deeply invested in the subject, I had heard from a dentist and a researcher. He said, well, so many of us breathe so inadequately, so improperly because our faces are messed up. Mm. We, we've evolved to have this mouth that's too small for our face. That's not how evolution works. You know, evolution is survival of the fittest. We're just getting stronger and better, yeah. living longer. He said, no, you need to go back and read your books here. That's not how it works. Here's the name of a biological anthropologist who can lead you through this world. So... I went to the largest collection in the U.S., it might be in the whole world, of, of pre-industrial skulls. So skulls are older than about 300 years old and, and to a few thousand years old. And we walked into this, this museum, then walked into this back room of this lab, and we're just surrounded in this room of these walnut shelves covered in glass with all these skulls from all over the world. So Africa, Asia, Europe, I mean, you name it, hundreds of them. They all had perfectly straight teeth, every wow. single one of them. And if you look at the modern face, 90% of us have some crookedness or some deformation 
in our in our mouths and in our jaws. So in just a few hundred years, our mouths have grown so small that our teeth have nowhere to go. So they grow in crooked. And there's another problem associated with having a mouth that's too small for your face. It means you have a smaller airway, which means you're more apt to have breathing problems. You're more apt to struggle to breathe. Uh, you're more apt to have snoring and sleep apnea, which can lead to asthma and all these other issues. So, you know, we can blame the environment, but we can also blame evolution. And a lot of people say, that's the, what are you talking about? Evolution means change. Mm. It does not mean progress. And it, it, counter to everything that I was taught in school <laughs> a million years ago, evolution meant progress. That's, that's what I learned. False. It means change. And look at the human species. We are developing in ways that are in no ways advantageous to our health or well-being. And that's very apparent. Once you start seeing that and realizing that, you say, wow, what have we done? So what's the deal? Because I mean, myself, I've had braces three times. So yeah, I have perfectly straight teeth now, but the amount of money from when I was so young, I think I was like 11 or something when I got braces and then had headgear and all that kind of stuff when I was so little and then to have that for three years and then I had to have it again and again and just this whole line of things. And I find that, you know, it's not about who has braces, it's about who doesn't have braces. More people do than don't. Why aren't we doing something, you know, why aren't dentists or orthodontists doing something to help us? Well, they are. They're straightening our teeth. (laughs) But what they're not doing is they're asking the question, why do we have crooked teeth to begin with? Mm. And if you even look at the National Institutes of Health website, which is the main clearinghouse for all the science, you know, done here in, in the U.S., this is the official thing. There is no mention of, they just said it's hereditary. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. If 300 years ago, we all had perfectly straight teeth, And now we don't have straight teeth. It's not just, oh, we just inherited it. It's part of who we are. Something caused that. And no one has been looking at this except a few researchers that I was able to find and look at their research. And what they found is our mouths are too small for our faces. Our teeth are crooked. Our airways are completely messed up. We are mouth breathing because of industrialized food. And it's very clear what happened right when industrialized food came online, mouths went to hell. The whole Dickensian street urchin with his craggly teeth, you know, and begging for a tuppence or whatever. He wasn't around 200 years before that in in the 1400s or a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. That little street urchin's teeth were perfectly straight. And that is so bizarre to think of. And if you don't believe me, look up ancient skulls on any website and you will see the most perfectly straight teeth. No Invisalign, no braces, no headgear, straight teeth. So what can we do day to day now if we want to have a face that doesn't change, uh, teeth that are straight and be able to breathe properly? Well, that's what I really set out to find in this book. It wasn't just to focus on the bummer stuff of how messed up we are. I wanted to start with a problem and fix it in the right way. 
I will say one thing about braces. I had braces. I've had extractions, headgear, retainers, yeah. all that garbage. It is curious the way that we are trying to fix a mouth that's too small for a face and the crooked teeth that come with it is by removing teeth and making that small mouth even smaller. Mm. So it straightens the teeth. There's this huge controversy going on with the orthodontics right now because so many experts are coming out and saying, those procedures make your make your mouth and your airway even smaller. Really? And they also mess up your profile. <gasps> so to me, it's simple physics. If you're removing teeth and you're craning those teeth back and ahead, it is especially when you're developing, yes. it is gonna affect your your facial profile and it's gonna affect your airways later on. So one one expert in this field, Dr. Michael Geld, told me, he said, We're gonna look back. 10 years from now and be absolutely horrified with what we've done to ourselves. And as an objective journalist, I looked at both sides of the issue. I wasn't sure where I landed until Stanford University Press put out a whole book about this <laughs> and showed that this is exactly what has happened. So we're really at this turning point where kids with crooked teeth won't be suffering from the stuff that you and I suffered from, <laughs> hopefully, in 10 years. It's going to take a while, but we'll get there. This is so fascinating. One thing you pointed out as well in your research is that most animals have straight teeth. All animals have straight teeth. All of except them. Except for some, like dogs, like pugs, or bulldogs, which have been bred to have these flat faces, just like humans. Guess what? They have breathing problems. <laughs> they have chronic nasal breathing issues. And sometimes their teeth are crooked. Any animal in the wild, look at monkeys, look at dolphins, look at whales, look at whatever. Perfectly straight teeth. We are the one species that has chronically crooked teeth. And it's no coincidence. It's not something that happened at random. We caused this. So now it's about your research and finding out how we can obviously improve these situations. And when you did your testing and you, you know, you shut your nose off, you clogged it. So you were doing the mouth breathing. You also did the opposite and uh, were breathing through your nose. How did that go? Well, that was the great thing about the study is after 10 days of abject misery, we were able to remove these plugs from our noses and, and breathe those first few breaths through, through our noses were, were transformative. And then we spent 10 days breathing this way just to see what would happen. And that snoring I had, that sleep apnea I had, that high blood pressure I had, that anxiety, the fatigue, it all went away. So within the first night, my snoring at its highest was, was four hours. It went down to about 28 minutes. That's pretty good. Yeah. The next night, I think it was about five minutes. A few nights after that, it was zero. Sleep apnea, zero. Anders Olsen, zero snoring, zero sleep apnea. And, you know, obviously we were very happy about this, but it also frustrated me and frightened me that a journalist and a breathing therapist from Sweden were the ones bringing this to the general public. Shouldn't this be something the dentists are telling kids, the doctors are telling kids that the pathway through which you breathe air is going to affect how you look. It's going to affect your snoring and sleep apnea. And luckily some are, and I've been, uh, I've been so thrilled to work with some, some leaders in this field who have been talking about this stuff for decades, but it hasn't really gotten to the general public yet. And, and I certainly hope that that will be changing soon. And you 
I, I think, do you do this now? You sleep with some tape over your mouth so that at night time you breathe through your nose. And can I tell you, obviously, preparing for this interview, I was thinking about that when I went to bed last night. I have been told that here and there I can sleep with my mouth open. So I was making a conscious effort when I fell asleep, God knows if it lasted, to try and sleep with my mouth closed. It's 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 kind of bizarre when you're actually consciously doing it. How does it feel when you're sleeping with that tape over your mouth? I went on YouTube, which no one should ever do for any reason, <laughs> and I looked up mouth taping at night and saw a bunch of absolute garbage, and I said, I'm not going to do this. But right across from Dr. Jacker's Nyack's office uh, was Ann Kearney's office. She's a doctor of speech-language pathology at Stanford. And I was talking to her about it. She said, oh, yeah, I prescribe that to all my patients. <laughs> and I was like, what? Isn't that dangerous? She's like, what are you talking about? This is not a fat strip of duct tape, right? This is not a hostage situation. I so happen to have some right here. This is a little piece of hypoallergenic tape that has this very mild adhesive. And what you do is you take a piece that's about the size of a postage stamp and you put it right here. So I can still breathe. I can talk to you. Yeah. I'm just training and I take it off with my lips, comes right off. So I'm just training at night when my muscles relax, not to do this. And I did this for decades. And I know this because I would go to sleep with a huge glass of water by my bed every single night and be hitting off that water. Every few hours, my mouth would be dry. So for those of us who have had extractions, who have had our small mouths made even smaller, it's harder for us to keep our mouths open. Not not for everybody, yeah. but, but as a rule of thumb, it, like if you have a weaker jawline, your mouth is gonna tend to open. So I did this, it was transformative for me. Um, and I saw that in my sleep data, in my oxygenation throughout the night, um, improved. I mean, snoring, sleep apnea all, all went away because when we were nasal breathing, I had to do this during that phase of the experiment. And I've heard from probably 200, 300 people who have been snoring, uh, even mild sleep apnea, moderate sleep apnea to zero by using wow. a teeny piece of tape. So I'm not saying this is going to work for everyone. And this is not a panacea. It's not going to cure all your problems. Problems, but it's basically free. There are no side effects and it's worked for a lot of people. So why not try it? That's amazing. And I've had so many friends suffer. They've had their adenoids out. They've they're hooked up to machines at nighttime. You know, they're sleeping in different bedrooms to their partners because their partners can't take it anymore. If you could give them something like that, I mean, this is, this is amazing. For, for people with severe sleep apnea, this is probably not yeah. going to work. For milder cases, it's been shown to to be really effective, you know, and, and it looks like Stanford is booting up a big study to, to study this. And when people say, oh, I'm not going to tape my mouth. That sounds crazy. Meanwhile, they've put on a terrestrial scuba, scuba mask on mm. and <sighs> what's crazier <laughs> to have snoring and sleep apnea or to, to go to sleep every night with air being forced into your butt, like CPAP saved lives, okay? They have drastically impacted people's lives for the better, absolutely. It's not a cure for the problem, right? It is addressing the symptoms of this. So if you think of what's crazier, uh, that seems a little crazy to me that we've 
degenerated to such a level that we need breathing machines at, mm. at night. Um, and so it's by acknowledging the core issues here and then figuring out a way, like what, what is the permanent solution to those core issues? And that's, that's what I tried to really look into. Well, it seems like the yogis have been onto this for years and you talk about Swami Rama, who is a famous yogi, and his breathing techniques. And obviously he was in a cave for a lot of his life and did things that we as everyday people, you know, aren't able to do or don't want to do. Can you take us through his journey and what you found out with his experiences with breathing? The yogis have been on to this stuff for 4,000 years, 5,000 years. And it's been amazing to go into the research and find so much of what they have been saying, not everything, but so much of what they've been saying about breathing checks out because now we have instruments to measure it. We can see what happens to your heart, your blood sats, your nervous system function. We can see all, even what's happening to your brain. And we can test these things, which is what's what's so great about breathing is it's easy to test. It's easy to see the transformations that occur. Swami Rama came from this old school of yoga and meditation. He grew up in the Himalayas and, you know, spent years in a cave alone, staring at one little spot of light and practiced breathing. And this was just something he grew up with. And finally, in the late 60s, early 70s, he came to the Western world to, to show people what, what he learned. And nobody believed it until they hooked him up with sensors and, and uh, started measuring what was happening to his body when he breathed in certain ways, when he meditated in certain ways. And, you know, we had to rewrite textbooks after looking at him because mm. he was doing things that were scientifically impossible. And a few examples are he could shift the temperature on the same hand by 11 degrees. Mm. So one side would be gray, the other side would be red and flush with blood and then make it stop. He was able to shut down his heart. They thought that just by thinking about it, um, but they found that he was able to make it flutter at 300 beats per minute, which would kill one of us. Wow. And he said that he could do this for minutes at a time. So none of this is possible. And yet the more they started researching him, the more they explored it, the data doesn't lie. Mm. And so it just shows you a sliver of what the human body is where our real potential is and how much of that potential we have completely lost in the modern world. I've heard from several of his students since the book has come out and they said, that's that stuff is nothing. Those are the parlor tricks. You should see the real stuff. And so hopefully I'm going to be invited, you know, out to see the quote unquote real stuff and report on that. So why is it that it's like that, you know, four-minute mile where people thought that you could only run to a certain time and, you know, we believe that the body can only do so much and with divers as well, you can only hold your breath for so long. How come that is basically not true when we're, like, pushing the boundaries the whole time? Well... I think that we have put limits on 
ourselves because it's much easier to understand things within certain confines. Mm. So even though these people, free divers, can dive to these incredible depths, they can hold their breath for this long. Wim Hof can sit in an ice bath for two hours and not get hypothermia or frostbite. Swami Rama can flutter his heart. Even when people have done this, and I've talked to some researchers about this, I said, here's, here's the day. This was in the New York Times. Like, it's legit. They say, ah, that's crazy. Anyway, and they just move on because mm. it's so far outside of their comfort zone, which is frustrating because science is the exploration of the unknown. And so if you're a real scientist, you should be able to, to look at anything, to study anything, as long as you can measure it. And breathing can be measured. The effects of breathing can be measured, just as they've been measured with Wim Hof and Swami Rama. So to me, if I heard something like that, and I was a researcher, that's exactly where I would, I would go. And the frustrating thing is, even though researchers, there are many very interested in this, especially with Wim Hof right now mm. at UCSF, two miles away from me, there's a big study going on, is there's just no funding uh, because breathing's free and doing this stuff is free. And there's no way of, of getting a trademark on it. But to me, that doesn't make it any less important or exciting. It makes it more important. And, and uh, it's something that I think more people should become aware of because if these people can do that stuff with breathing and meditation, what, what can the rest of us do? Well, one thing that really stood out to me in your book is when you said that lifespan increases when we breathe properly. I mean, why do most people, why do mainstream know this? Well, lung capacity, uh, respiratory health is a clear marker of longevity. And that's what the Framingham study had, had shown. More than anything else, how big are your lungs? How well are they working? And breathing is a way to not only inhibit some of that deterioration that comes with, as we age with lung function, but you can actually bolster it. You can affect, you can change your lung capacity. And it's just that breathing is such a simple thing. A lot of people think like the pathway to health, it needs to be complicated or it needs to be expensive for it to really work. If you look at the science, that's just not true. Our bodies want to be in balance. Breathing is the quickest way to breathe, bring them into balance. This isn't to say that you don't need to exercise or eat right. Now, of course you do. But breathing needs to be considered as one of those pillars of health. And it's not right now. And so even if you're eating all the right foods and you're exercising all the time, if you're not breathing right, you're never going to be healthy. And that's what the researchers are very clearly showing right now. And you talk about how breathing in is obviously very important, but it's the breath out that makes such a difference. Why is that? Because you can only take a full breath in if you get all that stale air out first. And what so many of us do, even with, with yoga folks, is they'll tend to just keep breathing in air on top of air because they know that a deep Lung full of air is more helpful, that slow breathing, lowering the diaphragm. But what they're not doing is bringing that diaphragm back up to take a full exhale. So true efficiency is to take fewer, slower, deeper breaths. We're able to use less energy to get more oxygen more efficiently. 
And another thing that's so important about these lower, deeper breaths and that full exhale is that diaphragm, which is the muscle that sits underneath the lungs that allows us to breathe in and breathe out, also works as a pump. Mm. It works as a pump for our blood and it works as a pump for lymph fluid. So this is how we can purge toxins from our body. And if we're not engaging that full diaphragmatic movement, we're inhibiting that action, that circulation from happening. This seems so simple. Yeah, I know. This is what just kept stumping me. Um, Something so simple, something so free, something that can have such a transformative effect on people with emphysema, people with asthma, people with panic, people with anxiety, Mm. people with hypertension, you and me, people with lower grade stress. Then again, the science is very clear on this. And yet no one's talking about it. Um, I, it was bizarre for me to be at my age and not know anything of what proper breathing was. Yeah, I've been to like pranayama classes, yoga practices where you breathe healthy for 20 minutes. Then I'd go home, open my mouth, <laughs> breathe through my mouth, breathe dysfunctionally and thinking that that was okay. And it's not. One thing that I've always found really interesting with the breath is the mysticism behind behind it as well. And I, I've been practicing this breath for a while that, you know, people on this podcast have heard me talk about several times, which is this Kundalini style breath, where basically you're moving air from your root chakra up into your pineal gland. And the whole idea is to move uh, fluid up your spine so it can then hit the crystals in the pineal gland and that can set off a mystical experience. Have you heard of this before? I've heard about that. Uh, I've certainly had some interesting experiences doing some of these pranayama breathing techniques, but I've never seen any of that measured in any way or, or put into a lab. That's not to say it doesn't exist. It's not happening, but I've never seen any data on it. Yeah. Well, I I try and do it, you know, a couple of mornings a week and look, I haven't, it's, it hasn't really I haven't hit that spot yet, but I've seen people who have and at retreats and their minds have been absolutely blown away. So firsthand I've seen them and it's they look like they're having a phenomenal time. And I wonder how we're able as humans to even do that. I think that when you start using breathing consciously, you are able to take control of different systems and functions in the body that you haven't been able to control. What I mean by that is think of like liver function, kidney function, the function of your your stomach or your intestines or even your heart rate and circulation. So unless you're Swami Rama, we can't just think and control these things. But when we breathe in certain ways, we can influence these functions. By breathing in this rhythmic pattern, exhaling just slightly more than then you're inhaling. If you happen to be anxious, you'll watch your blood pressure drop, especially if you have higher blood pressure. It drops within about a minute. And so this is just showing what happens when you start taking control of your breathing. It's really the anchor to so many of the systems in the body. So you went and you did some holotropic breath work. Can you take us through exactly what that is and what your experience with it was? Holotropic breath work developed in the 70s and it was invented by Stanislav Grof and his wife and 
what they were trying to do is elicit a lot of the reactions of LSD, but without taking LSD, because Groff was a uh, psychologist, a psychiatrist, and he found LSD to be extremely effective in the 60s for people with schizophrenia and other chronic mental problems. It's interesting now that it's now being explored once again. There's more new science of the lost art. But it got banned in, in what, 1968? And so he wanted to find a therapy that could have the same effect. So he developed this therapy. It's called holotropic breathwork, which means over-breathing. Uh, for breathing as hard as you can for three hours in a room with other people with very loud music. And this sounds nuts. It's because it pretty much was, but they found later on that it was extremely effective for people with chronic mental disorders, people with schizophrenia, addicts, and more. There was one study where one researcher put 11,000 people through this over 10 years and followed 420 of them, 423 of them, and found that this was more effective than any other therapy. So we know it was doing something, but we just didn't know exactly what. So was it impacting the brain? Was it impacting the pH? Was it stressing you out? Was it calming you? It had never really been studied in in a lab before. So as a journalist, I wanted to experience this first myself. And just to see what it did to my body and, and talk to some some people who were practicing this. So I signed up for a workshop and it was a weekend workshop and went up to Hot Springs here in Mendocino, uh, north of San Francisco. And people really seemed to to get a lot out of it. I mean, what was surprising is it wasn't like a bunch of like flaky people there. There were architects, there were lawyers, there were city people, there were, you know, a few moms and, and some younger people as a real variety. And these sessions were, were really wild. I mean, so much wilder than I thought they were going to be. I thought it was great. People were being really free. They seemed to be breaking loose of stuff. My problem with it was that it didn't really look like some of the people that were having the most dramatic reactions were breathing any differently than me. So I kept wondering how much of this is placebo Mm. how much of this is psychosomatic yeah one guy you know thought he turned into a wolf and was was cruising around another lady broke down and then became a thought she was a baby and i don't want to like these people had these experiences and it meant a lot to them so i'm not here to criticize anyone's experience but as an objective observer i did not see how these people were being affected by the breathing part of this. They were being Mm. affected by the setting and being in this very open, respectful place. But how would that be different than just putting these people in this space and saying, you can breathe however you want. You can sit in a corner or whatever and have these reactions. How did they make you breathe in there that was different to how we would normally breathe? That's how you breathe. And you do it for about three hours. So what happens is um, it's extreme over breathing. And obviously you, you can choose what over breathing means to you. So I really went for it. I, I tried to go as hard as I could, but other people were breathing very calmly, breathing through their noses and having these experiences. But as, as someone who knew a bit of the science, it was interesting to see how your body starts compensating 
when you're under this extreme stress. Because when you're breathing that much, all of this vasoconstriction takes over your fingers. So your fingers get cold, right? And so your body compensates to keep your pH at the right level. And, and all of these things are happening at once. So I just sort of try to go inside of my body and understand how my body was keeping itself alive under this extreme stress. And what I think holotropic breathwork really does is it breaks people down. It pushes them to a crisis point so they can break through their problems. And if that's what it takes, that's great. Uh, like I said, a lot of people really got a lot out of that mm. workshop and that's wonderful. What do you do breathing wise day to day? Like what is your practice? You know, people think I'm the best breather in the world now because <laughs> I wrote this book about it and I'm not at all. I was a journalist who went into this world, spent several years with some of the best breathers in the world and some of the the real experts in this field. And I picked up a few tricks and you can't help being, you know, emotionally affected by some of these people who have transformed their lives, mm. who've been told that, you know, you're screwed. You've got this breathing problem. You're going to have it the rest of your life. Here's, here's your pills and see you later. And to find that they're no longer on these pills and they're healthier than they've ever been. So I wanted to, improve my breathing. And I've found that the simplest things are the most effective. They're the easiest things to keep up with throughout the day. And they're just more tools in the toolbox to use at any time. Should I grow, you know, very tired, I can breathe in ways to stimulate myself and, and, and get more awake. Should I get anxious? I know how to calm myself down before exercising, before a big surf, I'll ramp myself up. So it's just neat to know that we have these, this ability to take control of our bodies and, and prepare it for whatever is coming next. With people that have anxiety and panic attacks and the you know hardest thing for people I know that have that is the breath, like they're breathing too much. What is the best way for them to kind of cope and breathe through these situations to allow them to not get into that panic state? Breathe slowly. Easier said than done, mm. I realise. But to breathe slowly and in a paced pattern, there was this amazing study done about 10 years ago at Southern Methodist University, which is in Dallas, Texas, by a researcher who went to studied at Harvard and, and Stanford, really at the top of her field. And she found that for chronic panic sufferers, just by having them breathe, breathe slowly, that's it. No pranayama, no mudras, no sitting, no staring at, at Buddha. Just by taking control of the breath, she was effectively able to stop panic attacks. Even after the study ended, which I believe was four weeks, two months after that, something like 65, 66% of the subjects in the study no longer had a panic attack. Wow. And a year later, 96% said they were either much improved or very much improved by taking control of their breathing. And what was most shocking to me is that nothing really came out of the study. This was a National Institutes of Health study. This was as scientific as you could possibly get 
And how are panic sufferers being treated now? How are people with anxiety? Here's your SSRI. This is this is it. I'll see you later. Few people are talking about breathing, and and I think that's wrong. And, mm. I, and I think they should. That is absolutely fascinating because it is something that so many people struggle with. And if it can be something as simple as controlled by the breath instead of medication in some instances, why don't we know more about this? I think that for, for a couple of reasons, breathing isn't going to cure you of all your problems. It's not going to do. It can be an an addition to what you're already doing. And from some people who had chronic asthma, who no longer have it, we know it works. And there's dozens of studies looking at asthma as well. So it goes back to that question, why? Why has there been 50 years of research into this? No one's refuted it. And yet so few people seem to know about it. This is a question I asked every single expert, every single researcher, every academic, every breathing therapist. I got various answers, but most of these answers circled around the same theme, which was that it is very hard to train people, huge populations in this, because respiratory therapists work one-on-one with someone for hours. So if you're talking about Mm. in, in the U.S. with private healthcare, that's going to cost people a considerable amount of money. It's usually money these people don't have, which is why only wealthy people hire respiratory therapists and get these benefits. And another thing is it's, it's really hard to, you, you can't trademark this stuff. So you can't really make, make money off. It's not like it's a product that you can put and, and give, give to someone it's breathing. We carry our breath with us throughout the day everyone can take control of our breathing. And I, I want to be careful not to point fingers. I don't think anyone set out to keep this information from us. Mm. I think that there was a very low incentive. And so by having that low incentive, it has pushed this stuff to the sidelines, even though every top institution from Harvard, Stanford, Yale, UPenn, you know, SMU, they've all been studying this and found that it can have a significant and measurable impact on people's lives. Out of all the research that you've done on breathing, what has been the biggest outtake that you've had that's really blew your mind? The biggest one, I think, was when I met with a seven-year-old woman in Denver who had had asthma for six decades out of her life. So... She grew up with it. She could never play outside. She couldn't walk more than a couple miles before feeling a shortness of breath, before having an attack. It profoundly affected her life through Mm. every stage of her life, from being a kid to college to when she had kids to being able to hang out with her kids, go hiking. She couldn't do any of this. She took control of her breathing and now When I talked to her with her, she was no longer on bronchodilators. She was no longer on steroids. She was hiking for hours a day. She was going outside all the time, no matter what the pollution levels were. And she said, if I had known about this stuff when I was 10 years old, I would have had such a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. So what she's trying to do now is A, live her best life she can and make up for lost time and B, get this word out to people. And again, I want to be very clear. This is not saying every asthmatic, throw away your bronchodilators, throw it. No, that stuff is so important. What I'm saying is 
to become aware of your breathing, start training yourself in healthy breathing can have measurable and significant effects on your health. And that is what I really got into in the book. And that's a message I really want to get out mm. there to, to everybody, because again, this stuff is free. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? I think regarding breathing, it was never work out harder than you can breathe correctly. Mm. So when you're working out, whether you're jogging, whether you're lifting weights, I mean, when gyms were open, I used to see people on ellipticals just, <sighs> that is awful. And you are actually inhibiting oxygen from getting to your hungry cells when you're over breathing like that. So slow it down and continue to breathe correctly and build your base. By doing that, you can increase your performance. You can increase your recovery time. There are so many benefits to doing it. What's your greatest hope for society today? I would hope that people stop underestimating the human body's mm. ability to both heal itself and to do things that we've been told are scientifically impossible. Seems like every year someone else is doing something that we've been told mm. is impossible, and yet they keep doing it. And it's interesting to me that ancient cultures thousands of years ago were doing all of these things. And they probably had been doing them for tens of thousands of years. And modern humans, for all of our technology, which is wonderful stuff, for all of these wonderful houses we've built and air con and water that comes from the faucet, I think we have lost touch with our bodies and our body's abilities to, to really uh, function in the healthiest way possible. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? To trust hunches, I think. And that sounds a little flaky, but I think hunches, I think Malcolm Gladwell has actually done some research mm. into this or, or reported on the research of to to know after you get to a certain age, uh, your feelings about someone might be grounded in something more than just you know how they look. Um, but but that gut feeling I found, especially at this stage in my life and in middle age, is more important than thinking about something methodically. And uh, that's not to say you you should only trust your gut feeling, but. I think that that's an important part of the decision-making process. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is doing what you know in your heart to be the right thing and having that be the right thing and beneficial for other people in the world. James Nesta, thank you for all the amazing work that you've done because you've really opened up not only my eyes, but the eyes of so many. Thank you very much for having me. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life.
For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.